Wow, that's we're just, just kidding uh, any listeners that might have been interested. <laughs> I know, we're setting, we're setting people up for the song later. <laughs> Alright, uh, stick of this bit, so... And I'm currently drinking a tea that has CBD oil infused in it. Is that alcoholic? No. Do you know what CBD is? No. Why are you such a child? When you say CBD, I think of Central Business District, which is the what we refer to as a certain section of the city in Melbourne. Oh, interesting. And many cities, in fact. By interesting, I mean not interesting. So, therefore, probably isn't a term used here. What is it? Uh, it's cannabinoid oil, which is a derivative from weed. Yeah. But does it actually have the same sort of psychotropic effects or what? No, it doesn't, which is why it's illegal to have it. Does, does it like even have like a mild sort of mellowing effect? That's what people ha- report that it has. Right. I've only had it one other time and I thought it was sort of mellowing. So this might be a mellow episode. Yeah. Or I'll have to have an upper or something to compensate. Yeah, you gotta start doing coke. Hmm. So get on it. I'm, I'm, I'm through with this. <laughs> Is that good? All right, let's, let's move on. Okay, let's, do, let's introduce the show. Three, we're do that. two, one. Welcome to Project, Project A+. Plus. A, A plus. Anyway, I'm here, your Hunter. What are we doing on the podcast today? We're going to have two films, two recent releases. Um, what is one called? Uh, one is called Us. Do you know what the other one is called? The other one, I believe, uh, from my research, is called... Unicorn, Unicorn Store. Store. That's right. So, <laughs> is that your review of both? Yep, that's all I'm going to say about either. So we're going to speak about us, and during the entire discussion, we're going to be using our tethered voice, right? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, she um, we did develop that voice after uh, watching someone or talking to someone who had some sort of. Uh, speech impediment, which I thought was a little... No. Yes, there's a wearing disorder called spasmodic dysphonia, which inspired her voice in us. <laughs> what a little bit, so, you know. <laughs> no big deal. So, I, I suppose we shall begin with the uh, bigger of the two films, the one that actually hit cinemas, Jordan Peele's Us. It's us. Are you ready for the greatest movie all time? Are you fucking excited yet? Well kids, well, get fucking pumped the fuck up. Because now it's time for the crunchiest, fronciest movie ever made. Directed by Get Out Jordan Peele. Alright, so everyone knows who Jordan Peele is, but with his multiple television shows and his movie that's sweeping up the box office... He's someone that, more than most other filmmakers, the average person might know who you're talking about. Mm. Uh, so, he's best known for directing Get Out, which, if you're watched with see the show, I mean, you know what Get Out is, you probably saw it. Um, and you probably probably saw us, <laughs> which is why you need us to talk about it. Uh, so, uh, us is the story of 
Lupita Nyong'o, who plays a character named... Um, Adelaide. Adelaide, yes. Which is also the name of a place in Australia. That's correct. Um, and she is in a family. <laughs> She's actually in two families. Um, one of which she is the daughter of, and one of which she is the mother of. Um, <laughs> is, that, is that good? Uh, okay, yes. So, as a child, uh, young Adelaide goes wandering into a amusement park uh, fun ride and receives some sort of bizarre terror that... Um, Involves her seeing a reflection that may or may not move. It traumatized her, and she refused to speak for years. Um, and so the movie picks up sometime after this initial event. I mean, also picks up dur during that event, and then jumps forward, I guess is the actual correct phraseology I was looking for, for that. Where she has successfully become a, um, a wife to Winston Duke, who's playing a character named... Uh, Gabriel, uh, quotation mark, Gabe, quotation mark, Wilson. Um, she, she has successfully become a wife. <laughs> yes. <laughs> As all women must. <laughs> I, don't, I don't see anything wrong with this. Um, we don't know about either of their careers, so we don't need to necessarily define... No, but they're, they're members of the bourgeoisie, let's say. So they're, they're bourgeois. That's not the right thing. Yeah. Boogies. This is like kind of the bougie man versus the boogie man, right? <laughs> you should go to, you should like shoot yourself for that one. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, God. Okay. So, um, her and her family, um, decide. Her... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I just remembered unicorn stars. <laughs> Proceed. <laughs> Um, so her, her, her and her family uh, are taking a trip to the um, Santa Cruz boardwalk and surrounding environs where she received this childhood trauma. Mm -hmm. um, and in tow is her husband, uh, Winston Duke, and her two children, um, whose names are uh, Zora and Jason. <laughs> is that actually the name? Yeah, yeah. Okay. I'm looking I at the Wikipedia right now. Jokingly pulling that out of nowhere. No, no. Uh, so they go there, and some spooky stuff happens, and if you saw the trailers, you know, they eventually get into a confrontation with their doubles, whose purpose is to kill them and seemingly replace them, um, and that's the movie. <laughs> that's the movie. Yeah. Um, so, Hugh, uh, do you think that Jordan Peele's follow-up to Get Out successfully met whatever expectations, whether they be your personal ones or the larger cultural uh, expectations that surrounded it or has Jordan Peele fallen into the classic sophomore slump or whatever you want to say about his next film this film caught us and what is the answer to that question the answer to that question is that though I would say that Peele proves himself uh, I would say reasonably adept at staging tense thrilling sequences mm. And though there are some genuinely inspired moments uh, throughout this film, I think overall this film qualifies as something of a misfire for me. Mm, I, I agree. Indeed, I don't think this film would be entirely out of place on Netflix as like <laughs> an example of a squandered promise. Yeah. Albeit to a milder degree. Yeah, maybe. What did you think? Yeah, I'm basically in simpatico though. I didn't, um, 
particularly find any of the uh, sequences to be that tensor throwing. So, like I say, my, my opinion of it is, is even less than yours. Though I did think it was... I, I liked the the humor, sort of. I think one of the best bits was comic. Yes, and I liked... Um, I really liked some of the performances as well. But yeah, overall, I'm with you in that I thought this was kind of uh, uh, uninspired and kind of actually dull <laughs> overall. Yeah, I think it's a bit of a shame because I think Peel assembles some interesting ideas. Yeah. And I think there's stuff you could do with this premise. I think it's inherently intriguing, the notion of being terrorized by yes. doppelgangers. I want, I want to say, too, that I can't. I don't want to go too much into what I think about the filmmaking craft of this film because when I went and saw it in the theater, the um, projector bulb, or the projector, for whatever reason, was incredibly dim, which made it hard to... Uh, it ruined a lot of, like, the, I assume, uh, more uh, dramatic lighting effects and that sort of stuff. And made the entire movie kind of hard to make out in points. So, like, the night scenes were, would have been somewhat unintelligible? Yes. And the day scenes also. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it was very dim. So it was that dim, right. Yeah. <laughs> it was... Okay, good. It was bad. <laughs> um, but that allowed... That actually, I guess it sort of forced... Or it, uh, you know, it made the more visceral parts of the film less effective and therefore maybe more critical of the parts of the film that I didn't like. <laughs> so. Well, I, I do think the film does a decent job of setting the stage as far as these things go. Sure. Um, there's the mysterious carnival flashback that you talked about that opens the film and we don't quite get a resolution on that. So it's like this, this mystery. And then we get the usual escalating signals that something is awry uh, as this family settles into their vacation. Yes. All that I was, like, on board with, I was like, I'm fine with, with where this is going. This is fine. But then there's this moment, not long after the doppelgangers first invade their home, and they can see that it's them, but weird versions of them, there's this moment where Adelaide's doppelganger starts monologuing in a ludicrous voice, and it immediately sinks the film. Yeah, I... I uh was also kind of put off by that, but I did go to the bathroom during that sequence, so. <laughs> <laughs> okay, good. Um, the, so it, it sinks the film for two reasons. First of all, we have the ludicrous voice, which we touched on earlier, which apparently um, Lupita Nyong'o based on someone with a chronic vocal condition. Yeah, which is not great. Which affected their voice. Yeah. Whatever the reason for the voice, uh, it's... It just sounds comical and, and ridiculous. Yeah. It's it's kind of like whenever Batman opens his mouth as Batman in the Christopher Nolan films. It, ta- like it just draws you out and you're like, okay. I don't know. Whatever, sinis- whatever like mood or atmosphere you're going for is immediately punctured yes. when she speaks. But that aside, even if the voice was fine, I think what, what the bigger problem is is the information dump. Yeah of this, this sequence, where it's just going to explain a whole bunch of nonsense about why they're there. Now, they don't explain everything at this particular point in film. They, they save some revelations for later. I actually thought the, the later info dub was way more uh, annoying to me. <laughs> oh, yeah, the later one's in some ways worse, but I think the damage is done here because it's so early in the film. We've only just come to grips with seeing these doppelgangers. Yeah. And... What we really want to do is, like, revel in the mystery, the weirdness, the terror, the creepiness of confronting this insane 
evil version of yourself and you don't quite understand why they're there and what's going on, right? Yeah, it's, it's really missing a sense of, like, the uncanny. Yeah, so we're immediately burdened with all this lore that I don't give a shit about. Yeah. Um, she goes into the backstory, which, which I'll, I'll spoil, the, the fact that these people are tethered to one another and that what happens to one happens to the other, but the other one, the evil one, gets the shitty version of everything. Yeah. Like the shitty presence, the shitty love, the lack of love, or whatever. And now they've come to the surface to seek revenge on those who have everything that they were denied to redress the inequality, I guess, with violence. Yeah. And atop this information dump, we get a clumsy dollop of social commentary when, um, like, someone says, who are you? And Adelaide's doppelganger responds, we're Americans. And Hugh, Hugh, I don't know if you know this, but the title, Us, that's also the... I'm, I'm, are you ready to get your mind blown? Well, yeah, I'm ready. It's also the initials for the, the the country known as the United States. Whoa, 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 <laughs> whoa! Hold those horses. I need to recover. Can, can you fucking believe it? <laughs> I, I was I was already sort of like put off because I I assumed that's what it was going for like initially, and so like the uh, the title like really put me off for that reason. But yeah, um, uh, sort of as, as we talked about, there is a later scene in which once again, Adelaide's doppelganger launches into a monologue to explain all the other stuff that hadn't previously been explained. Yes. Um, and yeah, it is even, that scene is even clumsier and it's, it's especially weirdly dumb. It is weirdly shot. Did you know if it was a split diopter? Was it, uh, one way it looked wrong. So like. Um, the evil Lupita Nyong'o is in the foreground, right? We see her face covering most of, like, the right side of the screen. Yeah. And in the background, towards the left, we have the more distant figure of Adelaide herself. Yes. Um, and that's basically the way most of that information is delivered, although it cuts to, like, flashbacks of what she's talking about. But for some reason here, it just looked weirdly composited. Like, yeah. It really tra- it draws your attention to the artifice of the... Yeah, and it didn't seem like an aesthetic choice or anything like that. There was, like, some sort of dithering around the border of her face. Yeah, which is why I think it might have been a split diopter, which has a similar sort of thing. Right. But anyway, that's obviously not the big problem of that scene either. The big problem of that scene is that we have to sit through another fucking monologue. Yeah. Even, like, it, the lore I don't find particularly interesting in this film. Like, what it, the more that's revealed, the less interesting it becomes. But even if I found it interesting or there was more there, the way they reveal the information is the problem. Like, just literally two speeches reveals everything we need to know by the same person in, in two equally clunky sequences. Yeah. And, and it, it really does not help that uh, she has the, like, weirdest and most annoying voice. Yeah, the, the stupid voice just adds to it. But um, it's not, like, revealed piece by piece as we go along. It's just like, here you go. Here's everything we didn't tell you earlier in that shitty monologue scene. Yeah. Like, leave some mystery. <laughs> so, but yeah, I just found it ex- exhausting by the end. And then when we get to the final twist, I was just angry. Well. I was just like, I don't fucking care. Yeah, the twist does feel especially just like, you're, like, watching and you're just like, okay, whatever. <laughs> now, you said you liked uh, some of the humorous moments of this film. Yes. And obviously... Uh, Peel's background is in comedy, so that's not necessarily a surprise. But yeah. which moments did you particularly enjoy in that regard? Uh, I really liked the performance that Tim Heidecker gives mm. <laughs> just throughout the film. I thought he was really funny. I did too, and I I, I thought 
the scene in which they get murdered to good vibrations was quite inspired. It worked well. Yeah. And I really like the bit where um he his double uh does the stupid like, Oh I'm I'm gonna help you up and he puts his hand through his hair. I thought <laughs> that was really funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I thought he was he was well cast. I really like Tim Heidecker just a general. If he watched been too much of his stuff. Uh, I've only watched like bits and pieces of um, Tim and Eric, but I feel like it would not be to your taste. No, I do like that uh, Celery Man thing. <laughs> but... That's like the best of it. But you should have you watched uh, on cinema? No, I've seen maybe I've seen like a tiny bit of it, but I haven't really seen it properly. It's a pretty inspired like parody of um like I don't know. Us. Yeah, no, the not the movie Us. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> it's a parody of like it just feels like a uh, film culture in general, which is why I like it. It's a very specific show. I, I actually, I really, I, re- I, but my problem here over the entire film was, I don't know if it was uh, a humor, maybe not so much, but it was the only part that I was really surprised is when the, um, the tethered version of one of the twins uh, does a cartwheel off a balcony. <laughs> I really like that. <laughs> it sort of just comes out of nowhere. I don't even really remember that that well. Wow. To be honest. That's like my favorite part of the entire film. Um, now... Peel stated that he wanted this to be more of a straightforward horror film than Get Out. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think, as is clear by that We're Americans line, I think he wants it to resonate with contemporary issues to some degree. Yeah, for sure. Um, like the So it plays with certain ideas, or you could tease out ideas relating to the uprising of some sort of underclass. Yeah, I, I guess. In contrast with this middle class privilege personified by the main family. Um, inequality, escaping the sins of the past, and if I can steal from uh, Wesley Morris, I'm still processing Please. the notion of double consciousness in African American race theory, right? Yeah. And this conceit is probably loose enough to accommodate most of these ideas if you wanted it to, but I think as as with Get Out to some degree, I don't think it amounts to anything especially profound or even cogent. No, I would say even if you like accept that it's playing with those ideas, which it probably is, it doesn't really say anything interesting with them or do anything with them that's particularly... And it lacks um, Get Out's most incisive touch, I think, which is like the satirical evisceration of the white liberal woke screen, to quote ourselves. <laughs> to quote our award-winning commentary. Um, but, I mean, to be fair, Peel has explicitly stated that he has he's going for something a bit different. Perhaps it's wrong to search for like a coherent statement, on some of the issues it gestures towards, but but it, it does seem like it wants to resonate in that particular way. I also found it just, even if you take, take all that stuff away and just look at it as a straight horror film, I think it's quite lacking. The laws, nonsense aside, the way the film keeps the core family unit intact for the entire film, save for like a busted leg, hardly makes the bad guys seem like much of a threat. No. And if they can be like disposed of by a kid with a golf club, you know, what use are they as villains? But I also like, it, it's so, the, the mechanics, because it's so, like, at the end of the film, it's like, well, I guess every, literally every other human being on the planet was able to dispatch, or was dispatched by their, by their devils, but not, not our central family, for whatever reason. It's just weird. Anyway, so let's wrap up, wrap up us. Any final thoughts? On us? I thought it was, um, kind of unpleasant, to be honest. Netflix worthy. Yeah. I mean, it's a little better shot than a lot of Netflix movies are, I think. It is, yeah. It felt like it had a better budget as well. Yeah. It didn't feel as flat as those films are. 
I mean, like cinematically, he's not untalented by yeah. any degree. He has craft. I just, you know what? I think he spread himself thin with all that, like all those TV shows and the Twilight Zone and all that nonsense. But I'll still watch his next movie, I guess. For the pod. Oh, yeah. For the good of the pod. For the good of the pod. <sighs> okay, how many um, points of the star would you give it? Mm, that's tricky. Maybe like, maybe. 2.5 or 3. I was thinking the exact same. So shall we move on to Unicron Star? Cue my wonderful music. That's funny. All right, cool. Unicorn Store is a Netflix distributed film directed by and starring Brie Larson about a failed artist named Kit who is living with her parents and struggling to let go of her childhood and embrace adult responsibilities. Uh-huh. After getting a job as a temp at an office, Kit receives an invitation to a mysterious store, which turns out to be run by an equally mysterious salesman played by... Samuel L. Jackson. What? The salesman then offers Kit her childhood dream, a unicorn of her very own, but only if she proves herself worthy of its affection. Now, is the unicorn real, or is this just a delusional manifestation of Kit's refusal to grow up? Let's find out. Now, before we get to your opinion, and we will start with your opinion, I said it here first. Of course. Although this film belongs in the lamentable category of the twee indie crowd pleaser, the premise is perhaps slightly too odd or untidy to quite function that way. With a little bit of tinkering, this could have been a Sundance smash hit, perhaps, or something that actually hit theatres. <laughs> but as it stands, this was effectively rescued from the dustbin two years after its original completion date by Netflix. Mm-hmm. And only then, because two of its stars happen to appear in the highest grossing film of the year so far. However you cut it, if you've seen the trailer, or if you've read anything about this, the idea of this film will likely seem insufferable. <laughs> Larson is both an untested director and an established actor, a combination that is bound to generate a degree of scepticism, right? And this belated release in the wake of Captain Marvel does little to inspire confidence. Plus, it's fucking called Unicorn Store, and it's about Free Larson getting a unicorn. So, is this film as insufferable as it seems? Hunter, is it? No, it's not. No? No, it's not as insufferable as it seems. In fact, it is more insufferable than it seems. (laughs) How so? Uh, I thought this was, like, unwatchable. (laughs) (laughs) 
Like, I had to keep on, like, turning it off and, like, doing something else. And then coming back to it. Okay, I'm not going to spoil my opinions about this film yet, right? <laughs> but I will say that I drew immense pleasure. <laughs> of thinking about me watching it? Yes. Because, <laughs> you know, my, uh, my, 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 um, general hatred for movies of this type. <laughs> you're, you're taking something that I already hate, which is, like, twee indie movies, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you're making the worst. <laughs> <laughs> You're ruining... You're taking one of my favorite actors of all time, uh, Samuel Jackson, and just debasing him <laughs> in this costume. <laughs> like, it was like... I can't even believe it. I, I, uh, I, I sincerely hated this. Really? Yeah. That does not surprise me <laughs> in the least. <laughs> I, I, I'm, it's going to be very surprising to me if I see a movie this year that I think is worse than this one. Wow. Wow. I hated all its, like, shitty, like, um, I also hated just, like, the general theme of it, too. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. it, it, it's made me, like, like maybe I hate Brie Larson. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to tweet something muted or get, like, attacked by Netflix now. That's my, uh, my new thing. So, funnily enough, um, this film was, was pitched before she was on board as director, uh, years before. And she actually, um, auditioned for it and was rejected. What? Isn't that funny? <laughs> yeah. yeah. great stuff. And then, <laughs> and then later, obviously no one still wanted to make it. And she was obviously <laughs> opportunity to direct it as well. I wonder why that is. How about we get that person who wasn't right for the film to direct it and star in it? Yeah. So, one way or another. Yeah, so she was interested in this project. Um, it was written by uh, Samantha McIntyre. So you've yet to, to talk about your own uh, opinions towards this film. <laughs> I actually didn't mind this. <laughs> of course you didn't. I found this, this more sufferable than it could have been. Uh, no, this, this, this felt like to be the worst possible version of this. <laughs> <laughs> but like I too hate this type of film that twee indie quirky crowd pleaser type of film I, I, like I hate most instances of that yeah but I, I didn't I found this one of the better versions uh, I, hate, of that. I, hate, I think I hate you <laughs> part of it is the fact that it is a little bit untidy and odd and it doesn't quite go <sighs> to the places that a more conventional film might have gone as is often the case with actors turn directors. Larson's primary strength lies in drawing out solid performances from her cast. And I think despite the fact that most of the cast here have mere suggestions of characters to work with, all of them wind up making some sort of impression. <sighs> I thought Mamadou Athi as Virgil was particularly strong as a more laconic grounded contrast to Larson's kit. Like their first encounter in the hardware store when Kit attempts to convince Virgil to help her to build a stable or whatever she's doing was one of the film's most successful scenes, I think. And it had a charm, right? I'm sure you'll agree. <laughs> I don't even want to talk about this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep going then. I think it's almost unimaginable that a film like this, such a sort of thin premise and uh, thin character details featuring 
Samuel L. Jackson, Joan Cusack, and Bradley Whitford in supplementary roles could conclude its narrative without instilling, instilling the impression that its cast was wasted, right? I mean, you've already alluded to the fact that you thought Samuel L. Jackson was debased <laughs> in this film. Yet, I think to Larson's credit, <sighs> that's not what occurs. I think all of them feel, feel in sync with the film, functioning as the narrative requires them to function, while at the same time justifying their particular casting. Like, you don't feel that they could be replaced by another actor and you'd still be at parody or you'd have the same effect, right? I think they do actually bring a little something. I, d- I didn't mind Samuel Jackson. I thought he did a decent job as this weird salesman dude, right? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I think what is really surprising about this film, and pleasingly so, is how deftly it handles its humour. Because on paper, I could not imagine laughing at this, this type of film. Normally with this type of film, you feel the self-satisfied strain behind every joke and a general air of forced whimsy. I'm sure you'll agree there, right? Yeah, I'm sure I'll agree that. that, that that's, that's the thing that is, I felt during this movie that we just watched. Yes, I, I, no, I would no. agree that I felt that specific feeling during the entire film, yes. No, <laughs> no, 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 no yes, yes, no, no, no. Here you have, yes, as you outlined previously, you have the exact same effect repeated again. <laughs> I think, I'm going to stand up here and say that I think Larson proved herself reasonably adept at generating small, funny moments that did not exhibit that type of strain. And often it's more to do with the rhythm of the editing and the delivery of the lines than it is to do with the words as written. I, I don't even want to... I'm, but, I'm finished. I'm going to end the podcast. No, it's nonetheless refreshing. And and I'm not lying. I'm not just being a troll here. I genuinely chuckled at multiple <laughs> I don't even, I don't moments even, I, don't even wanna, I don't even want to talk about it. It wasn't an uproarious laugh, but it was, it was a physical chuckle. <laughs> Thank you so much. As I, as I said, my biggest source of amusement was imagining you watching this film, but I'll leave that as an aside. And let's talk about the pathos. Did I cry? <laughs> Did I cry when shit. Virgil erected a monument to Kit's art? <laughs> you, you suck. I hate you. Did I? Listener, I did. I hate you. I hate you so much. <laughs> this is the end of the show. This is the last episode. <laughs> We can't come back with this. This is all legitimate. I stand by everything. That makes it worse. Now let's talk about. (laughs) Let's talk about. Let's talk about the visual language of the show. Okay, so I think you know it's reasonably competent in the American indie cinema mode. It's like literally the thing that you complain about every time we watch a film. Larson exhibits a particular fondness for light reflection on the lens, which is all the rage these days. <laughs> it's just the um, shower focus prestige mode shit. The hyperreal color palette is not something we haven't seen before in this type of film, but it does match the film's central theme nicely. Indeed, in conjunction with the slightness and the silliness of the narrative, you could say that the whole aesthetic operates as an encapsulation of Kit's inability to dispense with her glittering, unicorn-infested childhood. It's as if the film (laughs) has been made by a ten-year-old girl. For example, when Kit gets her temp job, the details of the job (laughs) 
is literally to photocopy magazines, which is something no workplace would ever employ anyone to do. So it exhibits that level of understanding about how the real world operates. Are you still there? Hello? I hate you. I hate you. Okay, good. Okay. <laughs> now, one other thing of note. This film includes a subplot in which Kit is subjected to a form of workplace sexual harassment. And it's worth noting that this film was completed well before the Me Too movement had its first big cultural moment. And likely if this was made again today, that story might have played out a little bit differently. Even still, even still, I actually thought that it worked quite well in this film. Like a full Me Too reckoning for her boss, who is the one who is doing the sexual harassing, um, would have derailed the narrative and destroyed its delicate tonal balance. <laughs> Which isn't to say this film is glib about sexual harassment. Um, Kit is an uber naive character, and it only it only she only really realizes that she was being sexually harassed when she asks the opinion of Virgil. Uh, when they're having a road trip to buy hay for the unicorn. <laughs> um, and I also think it's a smart move to not show any negative consequence on a, on the boss as a result of his actions, because, like, the vast majority of time, this is what happened. People were getting away with this type of sexual harassment, and I'm sure, for the most part, that still happens. And this leads me to another related point, my friend. So her boss has a sexual attraction towards her and this is the only reason he puts her forward to pitch. Well, I didn't quite understand it. Maybe you could fill me in on some of the details if you picked it up. But I guess it's like a, a, an advertising company and that she gets to do a pitch to, for a new um, advertising campaign for a vacuum cleaner or something. And... Um, Kit has to come up with an idea and then stand before, like, a board of people in suits and pitch it. Right? That was what was <sighs> Now, uh, the boss didn't even expect her to show up. He wasn't really serious about it. He was just interested in her physically. But she has a burst of inspiration, and she appears anyway and co-ops a couple of her co-workers to help her. And they do this very silly presentation, and she's dressed up in, like, a ridiculous childish outfit. And they throw glitter everywhere... And it doesn't seem to be going over well with the stiff suits. But then there's a turn and they start talking about uh, their emotions and what things in their life they would use a vacuum cleaner to hoover up, right? Maybe this is the angle, maybe this is the right angle. And maybe they can still, over the, still win over the room, right? It seems like a turning point. And in a different film, that might have happened. It might have said that even if you subscribe... Finally, to the adult world, there's still some room for creativity and joy in life. And if this was the Sundance smash hit that it might have been, maybe that would have happened. But that's not what it happened, is it, is it Hunter? Instead, the boss simply says, no, nah, I like the other campaign, and that's the end of it. So she doesn't get to prove her worth to her boss, to prove that she's worth more to him than her sex appeal. And he doesn't get taken to HR for his misconduct or fired. Instead, she leaves the job and everything continues on. And in its way, I think that's, that's quite an effective portrayal of, of that particular issue, while without having to um, completely derail the tone of the film. Now, in saying all this, Hunter, I don't mean to give the impression <laughs> that the film The Unicorn Store 
or unicorn store, whatever it is, is a masterpiece. It's not a masterpiece, nor is it even a great film. But what the unicorn store is, Hunter, is a pretty good film. Pretty good is what it is. Not without its flaws, and certainly I would forgive anyone, including yourself, for not being able to tolerate this particular brand of whimsy. Film is not for everyone, but it is not a bad film, and this is the hill I will die upon. No, I'm, I'm, I can't even. I don't, I, don't, I don't want to talk about this anymore. We're done. <laughs> I give it half a star. That's it. Well, I'm you, the, quite the misogynist. <laughs> yeah, well, fuck you. Uh, any, any, anything else you want to say about this film? Um, it's really bad. And I, I, I disagree with everything that you said. <laughs> fair? Okay, that's fair. We can have a disagreement. That's the joy of this podcast. <laughs> I feel like most of the time we agree, though. In other words, this podcast is usually not very interesting. It's, it's only interesting when we disagree. <laughs> this isn't this isn't you either. This is our peak. This is our finest <laughs> moment. Uh, it's it's also pretty economical, you must say, in its storytelling. It's a, it's a clean, just, clear, just, just shut the fuck up. <laughs> Bonus features. <laughs> I, I I can't I can't I can't I can't do this. I can't deal with you. <laughs> Um, I just want to say I disagree with you that it uh, it handles that uh, element of sexual harassment that well, at least in my opinion. Which I I, I I genuinely uh, thought uh, it worked. uh, I let you have your bit. (laughs) Okay, go, go. I'm not saying that... uh, (laughs) Having um, that, as you said, the majority of cases of sexual harassment are, in the real world, do not receive any sort of comeuppance. But I find the specific way it positions you, and as you say, it it doesn't um, require us to, it doesn't require the boss to, like, have some revelation or, like, you know, forces her to acknowledge her worth, right? Yeah, I think that's a good thing. Yes, but in in a sense, it's because the film is already uh, locked onto her system of values as the system of values that is positive, right? So it doesn't need to have that convincing moment because in a in the film's world, this is already you should have already subscribed to the system of values. But I, I think that would have weakened its portrayal. Of no, I I agree. This, <laughs> but um, I think it's still bad. This type of behavior in the workplace. Uh, Let's uh, not. Okay, that's, that's. This is it. the film that Me Too needs. <laughs> Just shut up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so that's is that two recommends for? Yep, that's Unicorn that's uh, no no never watch never watch. <laughs> I hate you. I hate this podcast. Let's just get over <laughs> it. Uh, uh, so how much did you get? How many stars did you give it? Uh, I give it uh, one half star. What what would you give it? Um, maybe three, maybe three and a half. Did you, did you like relate to the idea of resisting the adult world? No, I did not. Okay. I kind of did, to be honest. That's because you live a bizarre lifestyle. (laughs) (laughs) But 
I say I would say that the relationship between this this film and the larger like political points it seems to be going towards, right? <laughs> seem completely incoherent and bad to me. I wouldn't I don't, I don't know if I'd say this film is going for any political points. Uh, I completely disagree. <laughs> what 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 political point is it trying to make? The uh, I don't know, I don't want to get into this. But it's the, a personal story about a, a, someone who is coming first to political to let go of their adolescence and past and childhood. But in by, order to finally by, be able to by positioning okay 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 whatever okay I'm just I'm just I'm done I'm done goodbye. It's a perfect. It's a perfect. I <laughs> I, I really want to end the car right now. It's what you do that. No. I I I legitimately hate you. <laughs> This is for the good of the podcast. No, it's not. It is. Because I'm tired, I'm just arguing incoherently, so it makes me seem like a fool. (laughs) Is it that, or is it that you're wrong? No, it's that I'm 100% right. (laughs) Fuck you. You're so right, you just can't explain it. It just defies being put into words. Well, that's fair enough. Shut up. That's irrefutable. I hate you so much. What have you been watching? I hate you so much. (laughs) Bonus features, bonus, bonus features, bonus features, bonus, bonus features. I watched No Fear, No Die, Claire Denis film. Then I watched Two Joy, which is the Igmar Bergman film. That's it. You go. How was No Fear, No Die? It was good. Was that? It was kind of a letdown because I was promised an appearance by Claire Denis herself, but she cancelled at the last minute. Oh, this was the screening you went to? Yeah. I forgot to ask you how that was. Yeah. Did she really cancel? She did. Did you get a refund? Yeah, I did not, but I got a free pass to another screening. Right. So, it was very annoying. <laughs> because apparently she did. Uh, she was supposed to do a Q&A, or she did a Q&A... Um, before an earlier film, and then it's just like, oh, I'm too tired to do this screening. So, but they didn't like, you know, like email us or anything mm. beforehand, which seems kind of like bullshit. Did uh, she do? Did she reschedule anything? No. That sucks. I know it's ridiculous. And the way that it was presented to us too, I thought it was so annoying because the guy came out like the the creator or whatever, I came out and I was like, oh, you know, Claire Denis canceled, and then she's like, well, but she's the queen, she can do whatever she wants, and it's like, I mean, I shelled out 50 fucking dollars so I can see her alive, like, come on, <laughs> like, fuck you. <laughs> was it, was it full? I think it was sold out, a bunch of people walked out after he announced that she wasn't going to be there, too. Wow. I know. You could probably have gotten a refund, right? I honestly don't know. I mean, probably. If you if you if you kicked up a stink, maybe. probably they did try to mollify those with the free passes, so maybe not. It was so annoying. Anyway, uh, yeah, no fear, no die. It's like a great sort of neo noir, which unlike <laughs> Gordon's story, I think uh, uh, has a good evocation of the the social and um, political issues that lay at the heart of its its story. So there you go. And the Bergman film. It's called Two Joy. Um, it's about a couple who are both working like a symphony, um, and, uh, sort of about their relationship and stuff. And it sort of starts off bad. And then, um, as soon as their relationship starts like falling apart, it gets good again. And then it has like sort of a, uh, incredibly melodramatic ending, which I did not care for that much. Right. <laughs> so it's it okay. Yeah, go ahead. Come on. 
Speaking of Claire Denis, actually, no, before I speak of Claire Denis, I will speak of a film that I forgot to mention on the previous episode, mm. which was John Wick Chapter 2. Um, now, I had watched John Wick Chapter 1, or whatever it's called, obviously, and found that a bit underwhelming. Just John Wick. Considering the hype, and the, the whole, like, backstory, again, lore, nonsense to do with the world of assassins or whatever, I couldn't give a shit about. I didn't find particularly fun or, or I don't know. And uh, there's more of that in the second one. And it's kind of like, yeah, it's fine, but it's not that interesting. That's my review of John Wick Chapter 2. Uh-huh. Um, but I did watch, finally, Claire Denis' Let the Sun Shine In mm. after consistently missing it in the cinemas, which unfortunately has happened with High Life because I, I saw like reviews of that coming from the States. I was like, oh, it must be, it must be coming out here at some point. Uh-huh. And uh, I couldn't find any listings of future screenings for it. And it was released, it was shown as part of a, a French film festival here, like, last month, and I completely missed it, which is annoying. But I thought it would still be, like, a general release at some of the art house cinemas somewhere. Maybe it will at some point. Hopefully it will, because I want to see that. I'm going to see it on Tuesday. I already have my ticket. Ah, Boo. Well, I mean, good for you, but brief for me. I just want to say something real quick. Mm. Uh, I hate you, and we should cancel the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, noted. That's, that's all I I'll got. I'll proceed. Uh, Let the Sun Shine In. Uh, I found it quite a peculiar film, mm. but an intriguing one. I'm not sure if I found it entirely successful mm. by the end. Um, and the, the denouement of the film. Denouement. The denouement of the denouement. film is uh, this scene with um, Gerard Depardieu that essentially feels like it's from a comedy sketch or something. Oh, I love that. I love that part. And uh, I kind of like that because it's like a weird way to end. Of, yeah, <laughs> end the and film. I think credits are rolling. Yeah, the credit, the the whole thing plays out over the duration of the credits, the entire yeah. duration of the credits, which is interesting. Well, I, I I believe the the viewers already know what I think about this movie. So yes, because I awarded it. My favorite film that was released last year. Wow. I liked that and I kind of didn't like that as at the same time. I thought it was like a ballsy way to end the film and quite a funny, mischievous way of ending the film. But at the same time, I didn't know if it quite completed the themes of... I don't know. It didn't quite encapsulate... That's, that's kind of the point of the ending, right? Because it's not, it's not supposed to be a thing that's completed, right? It's about it's about like a cyclical behavior that's going to continue to go on. That's yeah, that's true. But like, I don't know if it quite. I didn't. I don't mean I necessarily wanted some material change in the the character. Oh, no, you wanted some pat ending that. Yeah, I wanted the, I wanted her to get her unicorn <laughs> and learn a lesson. But that's also okay. Not to <laughs> she doesn't learn any lessons in in the unicorn store. Yeah, she learns to, no, she to let go of this childhood fantasy and take some responsibility for uh, her life by the end because she decides uh, to give the unicorn up to. And, and the for that, she, needs it more. she it serves its purpose gains, in her life. She gains one person. Yes. Uh, talk about a movie that had a woke screen. But Let the Sunshine In was, uh, was good. And it's the type of film that I want to revisit. Hmm. And maybe I will have a different opinion about it as a whole when I revisit it. You'll uh, upgrade your four stars into a five stars. It could well happen. Could well happen. But that's where I'm. I'm sticking to. That's where I'm landing on on a first viewing. 
I thought it was also very funny. Not Universal. It was Sorry. funny. Let the sun shine in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. I was talking about let the, let the sun the unicorn. Let the unicorn, <laughs> let the unicorn in. in. <laughs> it's a bestiality film. That's a weird <laughs> way for you to pivot you. Um, anyway, what else did I watch? I watched the Infernal Affairs, the film upon which The Departed was based. I think I might prefer to The Departed. Yeah, yeah, you and every other fucking idiot. <laughs> no, a lot of people don't. No, I feel like anyone who's watched both are like, oh yes, The Departed's trash. I feel like the reason anyone watches both is so they can say that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it, that's not the reason uh, I watched it. It's just that it yeah. appeared on the streaming service. And I've always wanted to watch it um, since before The Departed came out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do like Andy Lau and Tony Long especially. So yeah, yeah, I'll happily watch them do anything. I think I think um, the, the material benefits more from trashy early 2000s Hong Kong crime film aesthetic than it does what Scorsese is going for. And trashy 26, 26 American film aesthetic. <laughs> I mean, if if you liked The Departed but wanted less Dropkick Murphys, Infernal Affairs. <laughs> that's that's one part. No, <laughs> it's like it's like three minutes. That's it. That part that part of The Departed is bad. I will grant that. <laughs> yes, it is. But the rest of the movie is great. It's so funny. <laughs> anyway, I watched two more films. One of them was On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which is another film I've been meaning to watch for years. I was forced to endure an entire three-hour lecture about the James Bond films. Really? Yeah. What was the thesis? So, this is for a class which is nominally about digital cinema, right? Mm-hmm. For this week, we were supposed to talk about the movie Skyfall. But in reality, my professor just used it to talk about James Bond movies in general. Right. And so, the... <laughs> I mean, it was sort of framed as an evolution of the action sequence, quote-unquote. But it had nothing to do with anything that we talked about in the class previously. It just felt like him wanting to talk about something that interested him, and it was, <laughs> it was such a waste of time. It was terrible. Uh, it was a betrayal yeah. on the level of you liking Suicide Squad, or, um... <laughs> my other... <laughs> Get it right. Uh, Unicorn Store. Whatever. Yeah. Also bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's as bad as Suicide Squad. This is a, this is a movie that when I think about my least favorite films, I'm sure that Unicorn Store will come up again. <laughs> as with Suicide Squad, which is why they're sort of interchangeable in my mind. Uh, okay, so I watched On Her Majesty's Secret Service. It's a film I've been meaning to watch for years. I've never seen it um, because I always heard that it was rated particularly highly among the class. Uh, as a as the pinnacle of the classic era of James Bond films, bizarrely enough, even though George Lazenby gets a, a ton of scorn for his appearance. Yeah. And uh, I guess the reason it, it has this prestige status is that it hews quite closely to the novel upon which it's based. Mm. And it shifts a little bit away from the silly, gadget-heavy realm of the previous Bond films before shifting immediately back again for Roger Moore. Um, but I don't think that makes it necessarily better. And, uh, this film has its moments. It's not, it's, it's a solid Bond film. I don't think it's the best, um, or anything like that. Anyway, Honor Her Majesty's Secret Service, uh, made in the wake of, uh, Sean Connery's departure. They hired 
a little-known Australian model who had appeared in a commercial. <laughs> That's it? It was Jane, George Lazenby. Uh-huh. And it was directed by Peter Hunt, who had edited four of the previous five Bond films and had pioneered that rapid editing style in the action scenes, which was apparently innovative at the time, but has aged terribly, to be honest. Uh-huh. Especially in, like, like relatively straightforward fight scenes where it's just like a fist fight in his hotel room or something. There's like a million cuts and disorienting camera movements to give it some dramatic flair and it just makes it look like ass, and that none of the actors are competent in combat. So there's that. Anyway, so this was his first and only uh, installment as director and, uh, you know, it tries to make it a bit more gritty and he finally finds the woman who steals his heart, played by the great Diana Rigg, who acts him off the screen. <laughs> what a shock. As you'd imagine. But also, George Lazenby seems like a genuine creep. <laughs> George Lazenby. <laughs> yeah, whenever he, whenever he goes in to kiss her, you, like, recoil on her behalf. But isn't that sort of Bond's thing in general? <laughs> sort of, but some of them are, like, sleazy, but you could imagine succumbing if you were in that position. Like, like, like Connery. Yeah. Or Brosnan. I'd succumb to some Brosnan. Maybe not Roger Moore so much. Because <laughs> he's, 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 like, a... He just seems like a creepy dad. Yeah. <laughs> I think he'd be easier to resist. <laughs> we watched part of, um, <laughs> of, uh, what's the one that, that, that people, like, actually give good critical notices to? The Roger Moore one. Spy Love Me. Yeah, the Spy Love Me. Yeah, that's fine. Um, <laughs> there's, we watched a bit of it in, the, in this class, and there's a scene where he's, like, fighting Jaws, and he's trying to, like, the, the, a uh, woman is is the the Bond girl in the film is like driving a car and trying to get away from Jaws, right? Mm. He just keeps on quipping at her. <laughs> like, dude, your life is in this person's hands. <laughs> and, uh, well, and then uh, finally, she she gets one back at him, right? And he just has this like most like petulant like, you just made fun of me look, which is so funny. <laughs> <laughs> Well, what's noteworthy about On Her Majesty's Secret Service yeah. is that there are scenes in which um, Bond shows some vulnerability and they're having a car chase like that, except he seems, like, genuinely in peril. Mm. Um, but all, but the problem is there is also the hangovers from the previous Bond style. So they try and make Lazenby deliver terrible one-liners yeah. Which coming out of his mouth just sound even more leaden and terrible. How 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 well does he disguise his accent? Oh, you can hear it, but it it it's fine enough. There's actually a whole sequence of the film in which he's in character as a upper class British professor or something, uh-huh. and he and George Lazenby couldn't do the accent, so he just dubbed over that <laughs> whole section by <laughs> someone really else. Because I thought, wow, he's actually pretty good at that accent, but I guess <laughs> not. Uh, I I wish they'd gone with Clint Eastwood. Or Clint Eastwood had accepted it, rather. Mm, mm. So I, I, re- I read what Steven Soderbergh read about this film on his yeah. blog or something. He's actually pretty good about talking about this film. He says he likes George Lazenby, but he thinks the filmmakers did a disservice to what he was bringing to the role by just trying to make him like Connery again. Yeah, definitely. And deliver these dumb one-liners, and that wasn't what he was suited, suited for. for. No. I mean, he's not really suited for... Anything at all. Probably any type of acting. <laughs> He's, gonna be he's not terrible. Like, he's got maybe something, but certainly 
delivering one-liners he's he's terrible at. And there's also a whole sequence that even after he's met Diana Rigg and that's the start of their love affair and whatever, he then goes and beds like a whole bunch of brainwashed uh, women at <laughs> yes. Lofeld's Institute. He kind of looks like uh, Brian Ferry a little bit. <laughs> yeah, he does. He's got that chunky old 70s face. <laughs> yeah. He's got the type of face that was attractive in the 70s but is not attractive now. Whereas people like Sean Connery would still be attractive now if yeah. he looked like he did in the 60s. Yeah. yeah. I just want to say, again, Brian Ferry's more appealing than George Rassipi is. Well, yeah, because he's Brian Ferry. Yeah. Prob- that helps. Probably probably better <laughs> actor than he is. Yeah, probably. Do you know the ending of On Her Majesty's Secret Service? Can I spoil it for you? Yeah, because uh, in, in the next, the first hundred one movie, they reference it, right? Ah, uh, okay, right. Okay. I yeah, where she gets fucking blasted. She, I think I, I think I've seen, I think I've, I've definitely seen, um, I've seen a chunk of it. I haven't watched the entire thing, but I feel like I watched her death scene. But it's an insane moment as to like where that actually falls in the narrative. It's like literally the last thirty seconds of the film. She just randomly after their wedding, she just gets shot in the head. That's that's strange. And then he has this scene, where, like the the body, the bodyguard on Bond's side is on a motorbike, and he drives up beside the car, which is stopped by the side of the road. And he's holding her sort of out of, fr- out of sight of the bodyguard. Uh-huh. And he just says to the bodyguard, oh, it's fine. Um, she just needs a rest. We've got the rest of our lives together. As if he's completely shattered and broken and, you know, whatever. Yeah. I mean, I get, I get what they're going for. But, like, that is, like, the cherry on the top of this, like, ludicrous narrative. Trying to give some emotional investment in fucking James Bond. I don't give a shit. So. And I like Diana Rigg. So I don't want to see her shot in the head. Well, there you have. Diana Rigg is great. She's debased by appearing in this film, just like Samuel L. Jackson wasn't, in my opinion. <laughs> Shut up. I, 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 still, anyway, oh, my God. Anyway, the last film I watched, the last film I watched was uh, Mystic Pizza. Uh-huh. A film I will never watch. Really? Why not? Because, Hugh, there are millions of films that I have not watched that are probably more relevant to my interests. Maybe. Maybe. And et cetera. To Mystic Pizza. It could surprise you. I, um, anyway. I, I extremely doubt it. <laughs> if, uh, if, my, <laughs> if my opinion about Unicorn Store... I, I can no longer trust you as a... <laughs> hasn't already ruined my yeah. credibility in your yeah. eyes. Then. Yeah. So maybe you should take my endorsement of Mystic Pizza with a grain of pizza salt. And these days this film is most notable as an early uh, breakout film for Julia Roberts... But also other cast members, like Vincent D'Onofrio is in it, and a very young Matt Damon even appears. Mm. And this is back in 1988. And it tells the story of uh, two sisters and their friend, otherwise known as three women. <laughs> I mean, they're not called three women in the film. I'm just saying, like, two sisters and a friend. the name of the movie. Three women. Yeah. Um, played by Annabeth Gith. Annabeth- Gish. Annabeth Gish. Annabeth Gish. No relation to Lillian. Julia Roberts and Lily Taylor. Uh-huh. And uh, they all work in a pizza shop in Mystic, which is a place, apparently, in Connecticut. And it's called Mystic Pizza. And it's about their trials and tribulations, their loves, their heartbreaks. And I cried probably about six distinct times. God, you're such a... You're a child. <laughs> this is not a child. This is 
someone who's emotionally mature, right? And can no, it sounds like you're it sounds like you're a broken person. <laughs> characters in a film. No, I I will not have tear shaming on this podcast. I I'm shaming you for your tears. No. You need to grow a fucking spine. You need to get a little more cynical. Grow a spine? Like, this, yeah. this is like this whole like, masculine okay. men's you, you remember, you remember, uh, you remember Hamish, and feminine. You ever uh, Hamish Linklater in, in Unicorn Store? Yes. <laughs> uh, you need to be more like him. But uh, I actually quite like him in a movie that came out a couple years ago called The Fav- the Future, rather. He was he was pretty good in his role, I thought, in Unicorn Store. <laughs> yeah, I thought he's, he's the part that I like the most. <laughs> okay. Which is not a good thing, I don't think. <laughs> um, but you should watch the future. I think it, I think it'd be like uh, okay. ignore the fact that it's directed by uh, Miranda July, who directed another one of my least favorite movies. Yes, yes. <laughs> which is one another shitty twee movie <laughs> that's like torture. Which which film are you talking about? You and me and everyone else. Yeah, whatever? you and me and everyone else. I think it's what yeah. it's called. Or right, everyone we know. You and me and everyone we know. Which is, like, the worst movie. <laughs> <laughs> I quite like the future. It's, uh... Unlike uh, me and you and everyone you know, and uh, Unicorn Store, it is not a film that has a sense of uplift to it. Okay. And actually, I minus all the quirky bits, it, it almost reminded me of a Bergman film, because it's all about a relationship falling apart. <laughs> mm. So... You should uh, check it out. I must say, I do like films about relationships falling apart. Let's say like Bergman, I assume. And uh, and also, I, speaking of films with everyone else in the title, the film Everyone Else. Oh, I want to watch that. You, I didn't really like, um, what's that movie? Uh, Tony Erdman. Tony Erdman that much. I thought it was okay. I But I want to watch that nonetheless. I think you'd like it more. Okay. Goodbye. <laughs> Forget Unicorn Store. <laughs> Can you forget the Unicorn Store or will it stay with you? But that's why, okay, ultimately, ultimately, this is why I think you're, you're, not to get back into the this. genius. No. Why you're, um, uh, saying of the fact that, like, because, like, they don't accept her pitch, um, that, like, sort of makes it more interesting than it could have been, right? Hmm. The film's point is that they should have accepted her pitch. No, I don't think that's the case. I think so. I think it is. I don't think that's what the film is positing. I think it's positive. That she's so amazing and that she's proved I, herself and they're just idiots for not seeing it. I don't think I, I disagree. The film. I think the film I, is I disagree. I know. I disagree because it has those other two people who get into her message and are really swept up into it. Yeah, but that's that's by the by. That, but that's that not by the, the by. That's, that's, that that's, that's, that's an example of evidence that you're, you're trying no, to no, ignore. No, no. You motherfucker. That's adding to the illusion that you think it's going a certain way, and then it doesn't go <laughs> no, that way. because I never was like, okay, great, they're going to accept it. I never thought that. There's no, like, illusion for me. Nonetheless, it's perfect. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to come to Australia and fucking murder you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, we can get back into it. I'm happy to I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm going to write Unicorn Store in your blood. <laughs> dive right the, back into the Unicorn Store. The, the Unicorn Store murders. But I get captured, I'll be like, Brie Larson told me to do it. He told me to be myself. <laughs>